Well, hello. Um, we are going to do a response video. I've never done one of these. Um, many of you know that I am a lover of listening to sermons. I was a pastor for 21 years. Um, there was a break in the middle of that time in which I was teaching Biblical Hebrew at seminary. I'm pretty proficient in Greek. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in English Language and Literature from Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts, and a Master's of Divinity degree from Nazarene Theological Seminary. And I did the first part of that degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. So um, I just say all that so you have a sense of where I'm coming from. But um, I love sermons. I, there are preachers that I follow who I think um, do just a wonderful job exegeting the scriptures and applying them to today. Um, and uh, I'm going to listen to a sermon I've never listened to before. This is part of um, the United Kingdom uh, Sermon of the Year competition. That's It's posted here by Preach Magazine. Uh, it says they've been doing this for five years and it promotes the art, art of sermon writing and preaching. It's open to preachers of all ages and Christian denominations. And the entrants submit a 1,500-word sermon on the theme made by God. The video I'm watching here has the four finalists. They're about 10 minutes each. I'm going to just respond to the first one. And this will be the first time that I've watched it. So you'll see my response in real time. So uh, I hope that this is helpful. I mean, one of the things that I want to do is uh, help uh, folks in active listening to messages. I still think um, there's something special about listening and engaging with a sermon, at least internally, while it's being preached. Um, and it's hard to do because the way Protestant churches are set up, it's mostly a lecture and there's no real chance to go back and forth and pause and think about it, talk it through with people. So I like that um, churches are filming these things or airing them live because it's really useful to watch a message and then stop and talk with people about it while you're listening to it. The disadvantage is sometimes you interrupt, and I'll probably do that today, um, the preacher too much and you might detract from the overall sense of the point. But at the, at the same time, claims in sermons need to be unpacked, and you need to engage with them, I think, as you experience them. So I'm looking forward to this. It's the first time I've ever filmed this. I don't know if it'll be helpful to anybody. I hope I don't end up criticizing too much. I hope I can affirm a lot of what I hear. Uh, but I love listening to sermons, and I have nothing but respect for people who spend the time to exegete the scriptures and to understand their local communities and to try and apply the Word of God to the present moment and to try to do it in as... Uh, winsome and articulate a way as they possibly can. I think it is an enormous amount of work. For 21 years, I did it. For the last 11 of those years, I preached every Sunday. Um, and it is um, a monumental effort. It, it depends on a whole lot of reliance on God. And so even when a sermon doesn't land, I have great respect for the effort it takes to put them together. Um, and the only time I ever get upset is if I listen to a sermon, it looks to me like I could have preached it with no preparation. That, that bothers me a little bit, but I don't expect to find that here. So we'll see how we do.
sculptor Michelangelo was once asked to explain how he created one of his many masterpieces. He replied, I saw the angel in the marble, and carved until I set him free. Magnificent as Michelangelo's sculptures are, the figures have not moved an inch since he carved them. By contrast, the wonderful, poetic account in Genesis speaks of a creator God who sculpts women and men out of the dirt of the ground. However, God's masterpieces have the breath of life that sustains us all today. In a world... So, what's interesting in this first sermon, and I took my first preaching class, official preaching class at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the professor was Greg Scharf. Who I understand had worked with uh, John Stott at the Church of Souls in England. And usually you want your opening illustration to set the tone for what you might want to talk about in the message. So, of course, in a sermon entitled Made by God, you'd expect some sense of sculpting or creative imagination to be at the forefront, and that's what's happening here. And he is contrasting the work of a human sculptor like Michelangelo and the work of God. And at least at this initial point, he's, he's not comparing them so much as he's contrasting them because Michelangelo can make beautiful figures, but they, they are not alive. In some ways, I, I wonder if he'll go here, but he could go into Isaiah and talk about the way in which Isaiah mocks the idols made by humans because they lack breath. Here, we also are sculptures of a sort, at least in his analogy made by God, but very different than what Michelangelo was able to do. We have the breath of life. We live and move. Now it's interesting to use Michelangelo because many today sculptors are trying to create some sort of artificial intelligence which may be more like what God did. I wonder if he'll go there. But for now we're beginning with the contrast between a human sculptor that makes beautiful images that cannot move and a divine creator that creates living, breathing things. I think that's what he's doing. We'll see how it goes. world with seven billion people alive, it's easy to feel insignificant, to believe we do not matter. If all we hear is that we're the product of blind, random chance, then perhaps that might be the case. Yet the Bible states repeatedly that we are created in the image and likeness of God. We are the crown of his creation. The psalmist speaks for us all when he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So, again, an interesting take on the story. Now, there's some stuff he's reading in, but maybe it's, it's, it's implicit. Like, are we the crown of God's creation? Poetically, it feels that way in, the book of, in Genesis chapter 1, because we are the last thing made. And the language of made in the image of God is used uniquely of humans. And so, it's totally legitimate. To interpret it that way. It's not the only way, though, to read the story, especially if you read it in light of Jesus, in which the, the God in the flesh takes the form of the lowest of a servant to find himself in the dust. Perhaps we'll see how he goes and whether he, he leads the scriptures in that direction. So, we'll see. God's revelation to the prophet Jeremiah that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, declares not only God's intimate involvement in the conception of our lives, but suggests he also has a calling for each one of us, which we should seek to discern. 
Okay, so that's a huge leap of logic that may or may not be sustainable by the text. A couple of things. First, with Jeremiah's, and I, don't, I hope I'm not going to be criticized. <laughs> I hope I'll find some, some things to really affirm. But um, the words stated to Jeremiah, maybe they can be taken universally as true of everybody, but at least in the context of Jeremiah's calling, they are very uniquely suited to Jeremiah because he's a prophet. And his calling was ordained before he was born. Now, you might read into that that the same is true of every single person who ever lived, and Jeremiah is a type of human. So all humans this is true of. Jeremiah is just a particular type of human, and his experience can be extended to all humans in some way. I would hesitate to do that because I really think the scriptures as a whole um, separate out prophets and apostles, not in terms of their ontology or their worth, but in terms of their utility in the economy of God, the way that God uses them in the world. And I tend to think that these comments made to Jeremiah are uniquely for him, and I'm not sure they can be extended. It's very tempting for us to read ourselves into the main character role of every story. Like we read the story of Abraham, we identify with Abraham, maybe with Isaac, maybe occasionally with Abraham's servant, but rarely would we identify with a secondary character that doesn't really figure much into the narrative. But the truth is many of us in our lives play the role of characters that don't get to be the main plot line of any significant story that we're aware of in history. So here he is going from the particular to the universal. Jeremiah's particular experience is the experience of all. And I wondered if he was going to do this when he was mentioning the fact that we're made in the image of God as somehow intonating our worth or worthiness. And it's possible that image of God language is meant to do that. But it's also possible, and uh, Michael Heiser, for instance, I think leads in this direction in his book, The Unseen Realm. It's also possible to see image-bearing as a way of speaking of one's representative on earth. When the pagan people made idols, they didn't think the idols were gods. The idols were small representations of God that were meant to mediate this God's presence or power into the natural world. And so there, you could also read image of God language as some sense that we represent God on earth, that we are somehow ambassadors of God and the earth, ideally, that that's what Adam and Eve were made to do. Um, so, again, there's a lot of interpretive stuff going on, but that's always the case. We'll see where he goes with it and see what, how we, what we think. God did not just make us. He created us for a purpose. And one of the great challenges, but also great joys of Christian discipleship, is to realize that surrendering our will to God is not about giving up control of our lives, but actually allowing ourselves to be more like the person he created us to be. But what are fragile lives cut too short, or long deceased relatives we struggle to recall? Well, not our God. Can a mother forget a baby at her breast? See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We worship a creator God that not only set the stars in the sky, but knows us intimately, down to the number of hairs on our heads. Now he's weaving together all biblical themes from a wide variety of contexts, like the I've carved you on the palm of my hand is word stated particularly to the people of Israel in relationship to the covenant that God made with them. 
Um, the hairs on the head comment comes from Jesus in the New Testament. And so he's weaving these things together to build a grand picture of how important we are to God, of how valuable we are in his eyes. Now, again, it's a very popular way of reading the scriptures today, but it's also somewhat narrow because the, the First Testament, for, for instance, is full of passages in which God seems to prefer Israel over other nations. I think of a passage, I think it's in Isaiah, that says, I traded Egypt and Cush uh, for you. Um, you know, or we might think, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So he's taking the positive things God said about Israel and the encouraging things that Jesus said about people in the audiences to whom he was speaking. And again, going from those particular examples to universalizing them. So far, he's focusing only on positive, affirming passages. We'll see if he brings in any of the negative things, if he brings any of the dissonance that you find in Scripture that causes you to have to nuance what is being said, or if he'll just keep his eye solely fixed on what supports this line of thought. We'll, we'll see what happens. We can also trust him with the souls of the dearly departed. That's not the end of the story, though. God has made us, but he does not stop there. We do not worship the, the blind watchmaker who may have created the world, but then recedes to a distant cloud and impassively observes. The prophet Jeremiah had a vision of a potter casting clay. So before he gets into Jeremiah here, I affirm what he's saying. But he has not proven it. He hasn't proven that we don't serve a watchmaker. He hasn't provided any textual or narrative evidence of that. Now, he's probably assuming most of his audience, maybe conservative evangelicals or something like that, will assume what he's saying to be true. But again, in a message, you want, I think, you want to root your claims somewhere in the scriptural testimony. And you might say, well, it's obvious that God is not a watchmaker. Well, it's not always so obvious. You have plenty of psalms where the psalmist cries out and asks God why they've been forsaken or why God is silent or why he's not doing what he said he would do. There are long periods of silence, um, you know, it, right there in the scriptural testimony in which the people living in those gaps um, feel very desperately alone. I think like of the story of Gideon in the book of Judges where he is um, threshing wheat in a wine press and an angel of God appears to him and says, Hail Gideon, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And he says, the Lord is with us. Look at our lives. The Midianites, which is a neighboring tribe, are decimating our country. They're stealing all of our crops. We haven't had a victory in living memory and none of us have heard from God. So what do you mean? You know, so you, people do live under the experience sometimes that God is quite aloof and maybe just watching and not involved, or at least not involved in the way he, they want him to be. So the simple statement, we don't worship that kind of God, may be um, too narrow again. But again, he's got a positive message, and I'm trying to pick up cues as to who his audience is, because he's mentioned that we can trust God to care for departed loved ones. That's a strange, it's a true comment, but it's a strange comment in a message like this. Um, makes me think that maybe there's a context in which he was writing this sermon where that is an important statement to make. So I agree with him. 
I think the scriptures do teach that God not only created but is creating the world. I would use Psalm 121 as an example of that theological perspective. He hasn't cited any sources, he's just stated it. If one type of pot was marred, then the potter reshaped it into something new. That in itself reinforces the notion of a creator God. Just as Michelangelo could not give life to his sculptures, we too are mere clay. Only the potter can shape us into something useful. Okay, so this is... Um, what he's saying is necessarily untrue. I apologize for all the criticisms at this point, but this is exegetically uh, dangerous. The potter image for Jeremiah in his context was speaking of the nation of Israel, not individuals. And so the point is here that Israel is a pot that has had a defect, and Jeremiah is explaining to the people why God is going to send them into exile and send the Babylonians to come and destroy them. He's going to break the pot and remake it. So it is true that Paul uses a similar metaphor in, say, Romans uh, chapter 9 and 10, when he talks about uh, God making of the same lump of clay some items for noble purposes and some for common use. Maybe that would have been a better place to go. I still don't think that's individualistic. I still think that's corporate. But he's taking it very individually and he's making this move that all of these broad themes can be brought down to the level of the individual human life. And I'm not saying they don't have application there. But uh, exegetically, this is a corporate word to Israel. And exile is how this pot is going to be broken. Let's see if he brings that in. I think he's avoiding that historical context. But Jeremiah's vision is not of creation as much as redemption. Israel had failed in her calling to reflect the love of God okay. to all nations. Yet still God, the potter, could remake her anew. St. Paul picked... Okay, so that's good. He's picked up the corporateness. I still think he's assuming it can be taken individually. We'll see what he does, but that's good. ...upon this image in his letter to the Romans explaining that we are clay in the hands of the potter and God can shape us for noble purposes. I personally find this one of the most helpful passages in all the Bible. Okay, it's problematic to unite Jeremiah and Paul at that point. It's a similar image, but I don't think it's operating quite in the same way. For Paul, he's talking about election, which Jeremiah was in the previous example that he was using of Jeremiah's call when God says, I knit you together in the womb, you know, I knew you before you were born. That's certainly uh, maybe more applicable to this. But in the context of Romans 9, Paul is talking about the dis distinction between Jews and Gentiles and the right that God has to choose people and nations in, in the earth to do particular tasks for him. Some of those tasks we might consider quite high honors and others we might consider to be quite common, but it's up to God how he chooses to use nations and individuals and groups. And the suggestion, I think, of Paul in Romans 9 is that God chose the Israelite people to, in the end, um, bring salvation to the Gentiles. So, in any case, interesting exegesis. And this is a peril. If any of you are preachers or you listen to sermons, it's a peril when you're cobbling together um, passages from so many different contexts that only can be uh, stitched together by some kind of common word that they might use or maybe a common image. Um, 
you really need to do your homework as to what argument is being made in the context and respect the original context of the book you're you're preaching out of first before you start making these moves. Now I'm not saying what he's saying here it's feeling a little too individualistic for a true biblical theology but uh, we'll see how he lands it. Maybe, maybe he certainly picked up the corporateness in the Jeremiah Potter image which I'm pleased with and he saw the possibility that maybe Romans is a better place to go but in both cases I'm not sure either passage is making the argument he's trying to say that they're making. We'll see. Affirms the free will that God has graciously given me. I can make my own decisions. Those decisions however have consequences. I can choose to... Okay so he's believing in free will here. Um, everybody believes people have choices but not everybody believes that those choices are fully free. So he has just stated that. I think that tells us his audience. I am an Arminian myself, so when I hear that, I go, mm-hmm, yeah. But there are plenty of traditions that that would probably raise their, um, their concern level, and they start really scrutinizing him to see if he's going to prove this, or again, he's just going to state it. And sermons are loaded with things that are just stated. But you have to be careful of that, uh, because um, one of the jobs I think we have as preachers is to show our work to show our audiences where we're getting these ideas. And one of the difficulties of short sermons is you can say it, but you can't explain it or prove it in a short sermon. So short sermons like this, this is 10 minutes, they're going to not be able to show their work. They're just going to show you the little bit of exhortation. That's all they can do. So it's the limit of short messages. If you want to show your work, they're going to get long, or you're going to have to really break them up into a series. Except reject Jesus as my Savior. And even if I do choose to follow Christ, I inevitably make mistakes. I still sin, and I fall short of God's intended purpose for me. Yet I trust that... So it's, it's interesting how this is being used. I'm sorry I'm interrupting so much, but uh, again, what is sin? Again, the words that we use have to be defined, and he sort of has implied here that sin is falling short of God's intended purpose for me. I'm not sure that's right, quite right biblically. I think um, sin, at least in the covenant of Sinai, is a conscious decision to rebel against the stipulations of Torah, of the law of Moses like sin. And you can have sins that are called in Hebrew shagagah, which are sins that you've technically violated Torah, but you were unaware of it um, at the time. You didn't realize what you were doing, and you can make sacrifices for that. And then there are defiant sins, like sins of the race right hand. But I, I don't think it's a sin. Well, first, I'm not convinced God may have a purpose for every person of the type he had for Jeremiah that sort of thing. I think all of us have to be willing to just be part of the crowd at times. Um, secondly, I'm not sure that it's proper to say that sin is any time you don't live up to whatever God's ideal purpose for your life is. I think sin has something to do with uh, willful rebellion against God. And you can certainly miss your purpose without rebellion, I think. Maybe you can tell me in the comments if you agree. That the potter will patiently reshape this lump of clay and will one day fashion it into something more beautiful. 
In fact, the image of the potter's house speaks to all creation. When God created the world and created women and men in his image, he saw that it was very good. Yet the Bible teaches us that sin infected the world. And sin not only separates you and I from God, but mars that image-bearing likeness. So he is reading the story of creation here very anthropocentrically, very human-centered, and, you know, it makes sense. I mean, the nature of this sermon is about us. It's not about the animals. It's not about the trees. It's not about the birds, you know. Um, but creation, um, the marring of creation is much more than just affecting humans. Um, if anything, we were created for the world. At least that's how I read Genesis 1 and 2. And so our, our fall affects way more than human relationships and our, the human divine relationship. It also affects all of creation. I think that's what Paul means, say, in Romans 8, that all creation is bound to frustration and groans for the sons of God to be revealed, you know, something like that. So it is a little bit human-centered, but I, I guess that's the nature of this sermon. So, um, so God has to remake us through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The American preacher, Robert Morris, says that on the cross, Jesus took away the penalty for sin. When Christ comes, the book of Revelation speaks of how God will remove the very presence of sin. Okay, so um, he's, this is called uh, theologically penal substitution uh, theory of the atonement of Christ. So he's saying that Jesus on the cross um, removes the penalty of sin, which is death. But he also holds out the expectation that true liberation from sin will not occur until the resurrection of the dead. So there are traditions like the one that I came from called holiness traditions that would disagree with that. Um, and maybe he would disagree with it if we pushed it too far. But anyway, he's really putting full sanctification, as we might say, out into the future. And he's, he's focusing on the removal of, of sin's consequence in Christ on the cross. Now, the cross is way more complicated than that. But I think I agree with him. That's part of it. But what happens in between? Through the Holy Spirit, God removes the power of sin in our lives. It's still there. We need to confess our sins each and every day. So this is a really interesting thing he's done. He alliterated, which I love. You remove the penalty of sin on the cross. The presence of sin will not be removed until the resurrection of the dead. But the power of sin can be broken in this life. That might be okay with holiness tradition. Not that he would have to agree with that. But I like, first, I love the alliteration. And secondly, I think I like that way of describing it. I think that might help people have a sense of what um, the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Anyway, I like that. It has less and less of a hold on us thanks to the victory of Christ on the cross. And St. Paul writes of this continual remaking. God is transforming us into the full likeness of Jesus. We're being changed by one degree of glory to another. Imagine if you set off on a journey using a compass, but erred by one degree. After a hundred yards, you'd already be off target by five feet. Not much, but still noticeable. But so, maybe that still speaks today. Do people use compasses? 
seems like a little dated reference. I, I don't know. I've made similar points by talking about building a wall, and if you're just a touch off um, when you're trying to level the first course of that wall, it's going to be really crooked by the time you get up. But I've always wondered if that's too esoteric too. It's a, it's a good point that he's making, but a little difficult to illustrate how just the tiniest error um, in the way you think about these things can have a disproportionate effect down the line in the way you live. It's a good point. I struggle to find a good illustration of it. Maybe you can think of one. If you circle the globe, you'd miss out by 435 miles. That's just one degree of difference. What I think St. Paul is saying here is that in the context of eternity, the small changes we see in our life, perhaps the slowly ripening fruit of the Spirit, can be almost imperceptible. But we should trust that we are being transformed by one degree of glory to another into the likeness of his son. That's an interesting turn. I did not expect that. Did you expect that? I often think of, because uh, sin means to miss the mark. When he was talking about being a degree off and then missing out on a huge on the real trajectory we were intending to set by a huge amount if we go long enough. I thought that was going to be a negative example. He's turned it into a positive example, meaning that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, can redirect us just by a small amount, and over time it'll have great effect. That's effective for me because I didn't expect him to say that, so it got my attention. In, in preaching, we call that cognitive dissonance. Like, I anticipated where he was going, and uh, I, I didn't, that, that surprised me. And it, in a good way. That's a good way to think about it. Oftentimes we're thinking about Jesus making a total transformation overnight. When it doesn't happen, we feel lost. He's encouraging us to just pay attention to the small corrections um, that can have a great uh, effect over time. Interesting, and, and it surprised me. So I'm probably not going to forget it. So God has made us, and God is also remaking us. However, even that wonderful truth is not the end of the story. We're made by God. God is continually remaking us, and God will make all things new. I remember as a child watching the Football World Cup in Mexico. I distinctly remember people in the crowd holding up signs saying, John 3.16. I just say those words, John 3.16. Many of you will be silently reciting the words in your minds. But for those of you that don't, so that tells you the audience that he's expecting. These are clearly, he believes he's preaching to Christians, people who are familiar with the words of John 3.16. So that tells you why there's so little explanation about some basic theological statements he's made. He's obviously preaching to an in-crowd, right? So this is not really for unbelievers. At least not, that's not the target audience. Don't know it. The words are, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, that at least is the most usual translation, but many theologians point out that it's more accurately translated as God so loved the cosmos. In other words, God's love... No. That's not what world means in John. It's a possible meaning of that word. I was really hopeful that he was going to say, it's not that he loves so much, but in Greek it says he loves so, in this way he loves. So, but no, not cause, where, 
what theologians? I would like him to cite sources. Maybe these are UK theologians I'm unaware of, but that definition of that word cosmos is hotly debated in some of the major traditions in Protestant Christianity. And um, it's usually interpreted particularly. I can remember listening to R.C. Sproul argue that the word cosmos there, which is the word in Greek, uh, translated world, refers only to the elect. And if you don't know that language, you do a little Google in Calvinism and you'll get a full amount. And then there are others like Arminians who believe it, it refers to the whole world of people. I don't know. It would be quite a move to now argue that that is the cosmos, that it's all of creation that's in target. I think that that's accurate. Jesus does. I was already saying that in re reference to Romans 8, that all creation is affected by the fall and by salvation. I don't think that's John's point, though. It might be Paul's point. I'm not sure it's John's point. Certainly not in the use of the word cosmos. It's a very particular word usually used of humans in the Gospel of John and nothing broader. So, But yeah, it could mean cosmos. It's one of the possible meanings of the Greek word, but I think that denies the context of John. Love is not just for you and I, although of course it's true, he does love us, but his love overflows to all of creation. That's true. One of the main narrative arcs in the Bible is the question of what God would do with the problem of sin. If sin has somehow infected not just women and men, but the whole earth, what will God do to redeem his good creation? The answer, of course, is that he will not abandon it. But through his Son, God will not only redeem the world, but make all things anew. So interestingly, he was so particular to humans when he talked about Genesis 1, when he talked about uh, Genesis 2, when he talked about Jeremiah, when he talked about the potter and the clay, when he talked about in Romans, uh, Paul talking about God making out of the same lump some vessels for common purpose and some for noble purposes. He was so individualistic. And, and now he's bringing in the cosmic through John 3.16, which is probably the only place I would say the cosmic is not present in the context. So I like what he's saying here, but he hasn't gotten there in an exegetically useful way. He could have brought this in in Genesis. It just would have imbalanced the message because he didn't want to start cosmically. He wanted to start personally and then move to the cosmic. And if you want to do that and still be exegetically legitimate, he would have had to reorganize the sermon. He probably should have started with John, maybe and ended with Genesis, but that's not what he wanted to do. But again, you don't want to bend the scriptures to make your point. But anyway, his point is still well taken. Christians have long seen Christ's resurrection as the first act of new creation. Indeed, St. John echoes the Genesis creation account in his telling of the resurrection. It was the first day of the week when Christ rose from the grave. Okay, so maybe he legitimately is uniting um, the Gospel of John with Genesis. I mean, that's how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and Genesis begins, in the beginning, God. So, it's not illegitimate to unite those two. Um, but, um, I don't think the first day of the week is the place where Genesis is most brought to bear. You're going to get that language in all of the Gospels. But maybe because of how John begins, you read more into it later 
perhaps. We'll see. One day we will get to share Christ's resurrected body. For all the wonder of God's remaking us, sanctifying us through the spirit and shaping and reshaping the metaphorical lumps of clay, our ultimate destiny is new resurrection life. St. Paul tells the church in Corinth that our heavenly bodies, by which he means new resurrection life, will be imperishable. They will also differ from our earthly bodies in the same way that a plant differs from its seed. Even though This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Though our earthly bodies die, we will rise again. What is sown perishable will rise imperishable. The risen Jesus is the first fruit of that new creation. The risen Jesus still bore the marks of his crucifixion, but it's striking that even his closest friends did not recognize him. In ways we cannot fully understand, Christ's resurrected body was different, even though Jesus still obviously resembled a man. The same will be true for each one of us. And furthermore, it's not just we people who will experience resurrection life, but the whole earth will be made new, something almost impossible to conceive of, yet will be granted a glorious glimpse of future glory in the revelation vision of the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. The new Jerusalem. That's Revelation 21 and 22. I really wish he would cite his sources, but again, he's speaking apparently to an inside crowd, maybe that he expects to know these references. Jerusalem. Throughout history, we see our God, who inhabits every atom in the cosmos, sustaining us with the breath of life, and who is continually at work, renewing and redeeming his good creation. We are made by God. God is remaking us, and God will make all things new again. Amen. All right, so I won't move on to the next one. We'll let this be the first uh, video. So he didn't bring in any of the dissonance in Scripture, like those desperate moments in which people feel abandoned by God, or in which God doesn't seem to be repairing the world or making it any better. So he doesn't want to bring that in, maybe because the sermon is so short he can't afford to. He's really focused on the positive. I would think with a great many people this would be encouraging. I think that there's another set of people that this would be um, very discouraging because it wouldn't bring true to their experience with God. But that's the case with every sermon, so we don't expect a sermon to land for everybody. But still, this is a very one-sided read. I do prefer a little nuance, at least a nod or a tip of the hat to the fact that some people don't have this experience, that to confess this for some is entirely an act of faith. I love that he's affirming that God is continuing to create. I don't love that he is associating that almost entirely with human interaction. I think there's plenty of evidence in the scriptures that God is continuing to work on the world itself. Um, in the book of Job, for instance, um, God says to Job that he waits in anticipation, or at least he infers in what he says, that he waits in anticipation for deer to give birth, or f a female animal of some sort. Um, that he's involved in the continuing safeguarding of 
creation itself. So it's a little anthropocentric for me, but of course he's preaching to humans. But I like humans to always get a sense that we're part of a bigger story and the whole story's not about us. And he, I guess, didn't have that concern. A few comments about death that I wonder what that was about. I wonder if the origin of this message was in a funeral situation or some sort of grieving going on in the community. I, I don't know. I love what he did with the alliteration saying that um, the penalty of sin was addressed on the cross. The presence of sin will be taken away in the resurrection and the power of sin can be broken in this life. I like that. Rhetorically, he did a good job of repeating himself um, so that his main points were being um, reiterated. I think the exegesis was um, confused. I think his main point it was a well-organized sermon based on the idea he was trying to communicate. But I tend to think of things exegetically as to whether what he says is consistent with the text that he's using. And um, I suspect that he was forcing his ideas into some texts. Uh, so at least that's my sense of it. Um, but overall, I think the message is true. Um, It's true. There's, I, I, there's nothing I object to in that he said, though some Christians would object to the free will statements. Um, I think overall, it was okay. I mean, for a 10-minute sermon, I think it's really good because you can only say so much. Um, but to me, to deal with all the texts he was bringing in and to deal with them fairly... And to deal with the subject he wanted to talk about in a more fair way that includes not just the positive but also the negative, the, the light and the dark uh, of that subject, that, that needs to be a 40-minute sermon, minimum, to me, or a series of sermons. Um, in 10 minutes, yeah, there just wasn't enough time for the subject. The subject was too big for the time. If you only have 10 minutes to preach on something and you want to do a full orb message, you need really to focus on maybe a single saying of Jesus or a single point in an argument or a very specific and tight incident in a narrative um, that you think you can explore in 10 minutes. Uh, it, it really limits you. The shorter the message, the more limited you are in preaching well. So, But um, overall, I think uh, a useful message, I'm sure, for some but one that you should be careful of. It could be distorted pretty easy. Yeah, we need to see more work. Meaning, he did the work, but he wasn't transparent in landing all of his claims uh, in the scriptural testimony. Yeah, so anyway, there it is. There are three more of these sermons, so maybe if, if this is of interest to anybody, maybe I'll do more. But there's my response uh, to one of the four finalists for um, the UK Sermon of the Year 2020 competition.